Today I, I want to talk to you about the U.S. criminal justice system, my observations and perspective on it, uh, and to share with you what I share with people across the United States. Have you ever been convicted of an offense? Yes or no? That's the question that had been weighing upon Anthony's mind as he hovered in the back of a government center's basement room some six years ago. Yes, he would have to check on his job applications, the last 13 to be exact. Yes, on his college application. Yes, on his loan application. Yes, on his housing application. Yes, yes, yes. What would you do? Would you check yes? Perhaps, like me, you could say no. If, however, you said yes, like Anthony, understand that you are one of the estimated 65 to 100 million people, at least in the United States, who carry a criminal record. I should say that criminal records in the United States are no minor matter, and I didn't quite appreciate just how um, sticky, if you will, they were in contrast to Canadian records until I spoke with Vincent earlier today. Criminal records in the United States are typically permanent, they're typically public, and they're incredibly pervasive. Employers conduct criminal history checks on job applicants, schools do so on students, and nosy neighbors do so on one another. It's not rare to find flyers in bar bathrooms advertising to women that they can look up their date's background while they pee. You can find, or I, I can find on my iPhone a 20-year-old offense from somebody who, who in theory committed a crime um, some two decades ago using just an internet connection. So not knowing their social security number, not knowing their date of birth, not knowing really any information on them other than their first and last name, and paying no money, I can find instantaneously what someone was accused of. This, as you may imagine, destroys people. It was within this context that I met Anthony. So several years ago, I had left my job in public defense to take a job in public policy. I thought that if I could change the laws that were so acutely affecting my clients, I could be a better advocate. So I took a job at the Council on Crime and Justice in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where our focus was on criminal records. Once a month, we held these criminal re records expungement seminars, or opportunities for individuals to, at least in theory, wipe their slate clean. In this space, men, women, and youth, all poor, predominantly people of color, would line up for hours waiting for the opportunity to speak to an attorney, someone who could, at least, one would hope, help them wipe their slate clean. I'm sure the sun had long since set when one night in walked Anthony, our last participant. Anthony was tall and thin and black and clearly distraught. As he wended his way toward me, he pulled from his back pocket a copy of his criminal record, a printout he had received from a computer terminal two flights up. Given this man's clear distress, I wondered what could his record contain that would warrant such worry. 
You may imagine my surprise when I opened it to find that it contained no more than a theft, and a minor one at that. I let out the short laugh of relief. Even if the court doesn't expunge your record, I said, it's not like your life is over. And with that, Anthony began to cry. You see, what was just a theft to me, to Anthony, was a lost job. It was missed housing payments, it was skipped meals, it was door after door slammed in his face, it was the loss of respect from his friends and family, the loss of a sense of self, the loss of hope. Earlier that day, Anthony had contemplated taking his own life because of a minor theft record, something that I had laughed at. Now, around the same time, I had been driving all across the state of Minnesota, speaking to legislators and landlords, employers and licensing boards, imploring them to give my clients a second chance. Time and again, I would hear, you can't trust a con. Once a criminal, always a criminal. Those words came back to me as I looked at Anthony, and I thought, hold up. How many times had I taken something that wasn't mine? What would life be like had I been caught? What would life be like had I been prosecuted, had I been punished, had I been labeled a thief back then? What would life be like if my race and class privilege hadn't protected me, hadn't insulated me from ever being viewed as a criminal? What would life be like if I had to check yes? One in four people in the United States doesn't have the luxury to wonder what life would be like. One in four people in the United States has a criminal record. I contend that four in four have a criminal history. For the past few years, I've been asking people like me, the 75% of people in the United States with criminal histories but no record, what have you had the luxury to forget? Today, I want to share with you just a few of those stories. Uh, I'll focus mostly on crimes committed before participants' brains were fully developed, although understand that that is, of course, not the full story and at times just scraping the surface. Now, some of these stories are going to be petty, some serious. Some happened decades ago, others a bit more recently. In doing so, I hope to offer a <coughs> personal way, for those who uh, do not already have one, of examining the true effects of juvenile and criminal records in the United States and the disparate effects of those uh, systems upon poor people, people of color, and indigenous people across the U.S. This is going to be a call for reason and for equity and for mercy. This will be about changing the way you view others by changing the way you view yourself. But first, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. This is a graph by the Sentencing Project made with data taken from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and it shows the U.S. state and federal prison population between 1925 and 2015. Now, barring for some general population growth, you can see that the number of people we put behind bars in the U.S. was pretty much steady until the 1970s. Then, more than four decades ago, we began the deliberate and regrettable march toward this, 
the caging of more than 1.5 million people, wars on drugs, mental illness and poverty, private prisons, three strikes rules, mandatory minimum sentencing, and concentrated policing in minority communities are just a few of the many policies and practices that have led to this mass incarceration, mass disaster. Now, as you know, this mass incarceration is not only unprecedented in the US's own history, it's unparalleled in the world. The US contains approximately 5% of the world's general population, but boasts nearly 25% of the world's incarcerated population. The US has become the world's warden. Now, what's additionally concerning is what happens to people once they're no longer in the system. When they're back in the community trying to get on with life, that's when they find a new form of punishment begins, a sentence that has no end. That's when people find that they may not be locked up, but are now locked out. Locked out of jobs and school and housing and countless other opportunities to move on and move up. Now, before we delve into the world of collateral consequences or those lifelong effects of a criminal record, let's turn back to the graph. As I said, it shows the US state and federal prison population just as importantly as what this graph does not show. For example, this graph does not show the millions of people in US county and parish jails. It doesn't show those on immigration in mental health facilities. It doesn't show juveniles in detention. This graph doesn't show the millions of people who are on probation and parole, their liberties curtailed, held under the thumb of the criminal justice system, just not spending their nights behind bars. They are not shown here on this graph. And this graph does not show, again, that 65 to 100 million people, people like Anthony, People held underwater by their criminal records, unable to come up for air, they are not shown here on this graph. And just as importantly, this graph does not show the nearly three million sons and daughters, the countless brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, spouses and partners, and greater family and community members who can all be profoundly affected when someone is taken out of the home and then because of a series of collateral consequences, not allowed back in. They are not shown here on this graph. So what may initially appear to be a tsunami of humanity ready to crash upon the US shores, you realize it's just a drop in the overall greater ocean of a crisis. Crisis doesn't come for free. The United States spends approximately $80 billion a year locking people up and keeping them under control. That, of course, is a burden that is not borne equally across uh, the country, and some communities are burdened far more heavily than others. It doesn't include what those communities spend to house, train, educate, counsel, treat, employ, and otherwise help transition individuals who are leaving prison or jail. And those disparities are quite outrageous. For example, again from the sentencing project, the lifetime likelihood of imprisonment for black males born in the United States in 2001 is one in three. One in three. That shouldn't sit well with anybody. For white women, such as myself, it's one in 111. Now, that's not to say that white women aren't committing crimes, right? Of course we are. 
we're just not who you see, proportionately speaking, in our criminal justice system. Now, importantly, note that the rates of offending do not come close to explaining these disparities. For example, black and white individuals use and sell drugs at roughly the same rates. Yet black individuals are far more likely to be stopped, searched, arrested, charged, prosecuted, punished, and then continually punished through that series of collateral consequences than are white individuals for engaging in the same behavior. That's important given that the United States, uh, one of the greatest contributing factors to our current carceral crisis is the failed war on drugs. Now, in addition to people of color, our system disparately affects those with mental health and chemical dependency concerns, and it profoundly affects poor people. For example, every year in the United States, there are approximately 12 million arrests made. Some 80% of those arrested qualify for public defense. Now, in some jurisdictions, the uh, level of poverty one must exist in to qualify for quote-unquote free defense, it's never free, no. <laughs> uh, is utterly staggering. And yet, we as a nation do little to address these issues once somebody is in the system. In fact, we do a lot to exacerbate the very problems. Prison, for example, is warehousing with trauma. With too few exceptions, meaningful opportunities for treatment and education, they're non-existent. People leave lockup, saddled with criminal records, making second chances, or indeed even firsts, exceedingly rare. To put it bluntly, people enter the system already disadvantaged, are chewed up, and then spat out even more so. Understand that those disparities, of course, start early. For example, black youth as young as five are suspended from school and have their actions criminalized, again, for engaging in the same behavior as their white classmates. Note that kids these days in the United States are growing up in the data age where it means that a scarlet letter can be stamped upon the ether that no amount of scrubbing can clean. Futures are being foreclosed before brains are fully developed. Now, out of the juvenile world and back into the world of adults, according to the National Employment Law Project, one in four people in the United States has a criminal record. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, that number may be closer to one in three. And those waters just keep rising. As I mentioned before, criminal records are no minor matter, and they can affect nearly every aspect of life from employment. Uh, for example, the Society for Human Resources Management, is affectionately known as SHRM, finds that somewhere between 87 and 92 percent of employers conduct criminal history checks on job applicants. Now that isn't necessarily the problem in and of itself, but rather that many of those checks result in automatic disqualifications if one has any more on one's record regardless of the recency of that offense, regardless of the severity of that offense, regardless of the relevance of that offense to the job at hand, and regardless of the accuracy of that record. Housing can be affected by the presence of a criminal record. Uh, professional licensure, the ability to practice law or empty a bedpan can be affected. 
the ability to access public benefits. So if you have no other legal way of putting food in your belly or a roof over your family's head, we've taken that away as well. The ability to access education can be limited by the presence of a criminal record. The common application form, the form that is used by more than 600 colleges and universities nationwide in the US to determine the makeup of next year's new admissions, it asks the question, have you ever been convicted or adjudicated delinquent of an offense? Yes or no? And while some schools may say that that is just one variable in a much longer algorithm in determining one's character, make no mistake the chilling effect that that question has on school applicants. Because here, unlike with, say, employment, you have to pay to be denied. $20, $30, $50, 60 bucks a shot just to be told that you are not a good fit. This at a time when there's no compelling social science research that shows us that prior juvenile history has any bearing on future campus safety, and at a time when there is so much research that shows us that the ability to access education can be one of the greatest determining factors in a reduced recidivism rate. <coughs> we should be pushing people into school at a time when we're locking them out. The ability to immigrate, uh, both to uh, naturalize, stay in the United States, and petition family to join can be affected by the presence of a criminal record. The ability to travel. Years ago, when I was working at that nonprofit in Minnesota, uh, we got a phone call from an older woman. She had been a member of the Red Hat Society. Does anybody know what the Red Hat Society is? It's an international social group, but I don't know if it's, it's got a presence here. <laughs> okay. The Red Hat Society is a social club for women over the age of 55. Now, these women are unconventional. They gather together to buck the system. They don their red hats and purple jackets, and they have brunches and lunches together. They do book clubs and debates together. They volunteer in theater together. And every now and then, they charter a bus and go to Canada together. That's what this particular chapter had done. They all boarded the bus, headed up north, got to the border when patrol came on and said, I'm going to need to run everyone's background check. The women all dutifully complied, each handing over their license. Some time later, patrol came back on the bus and walking down the aisle returned those licenses. Have a good time, enjoy Canada, visit Tim Hortons, you can't go. See, what had happened was some three decades ago, this woman had been accused of an offense. She was never charged, much less convicted, but that arrest was enough to bar her entry into the country. Her sisterhood said, see you later, and they dropped her off at a gas station in International Falls. Did I mention she's in a mobility chair? So here's this woman in her wheelchair with her red hat and purple jacket at a payphone calling back home to have money wired up so she could return, but she said that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was as her sisters were pulling out of the station, one of them put down a window and said, I thought I knew who you were. As if what had allegedly occurred some 30 years ago was the full sum of this woman's character. 
not those brunches, not those lunches, not those book clubs, not those debates, not all of the time that they had spent volunteering at the theater together, and certainly not the four and a half hours it had taken to take that bus up to the border. Suddenly, none of that mattered. She was reduced to a single moment in time, a single accusation, a single record. And as preposterous as you may think that sounds, you should understand that it happens to people every day across the United States. Millions of people whose full character are determined, confined and defined by their criminal record. Also the ability to cast a ballot, to have one's voice heard, uh, to have some political sway in your own backyard can be affected by the presence of a criminal record. Now, of course, these are just a few of the myriad ways in which a criminal record can affect someone. There's also the ability to receive medical treatment, to get a loan, um, and uh, serve uh, on, on jury in um, public office. <laughs> uh, truly, there are thousands of collateral sanctions, legal barriers to one moving forward. It's death by a thousand cuts, or where a pound of flesh is never enough. It's as if in the United States we believe that the only appropriate consequences are those that eviscerate a person, his or her family, and future too. So criminal histories can affect nearly every aspect, as I said, of who we are and how we engage with the world, from personal to professional, from social to psychological. We're confined and defined by our criminal pasts, but not for everyone. In fact, just for a few of us, just one in four of us. For the rest of us, we've been able to skate through life unscathed by that particular reminder of that past after acts. So here's what happened. In 2012, I drew up a flyer that said, quite simply, we are all criminals. What have you had the luxury to forget? I left my contact information. I sent it on to our social service network through the nonprofit where I was working, but I asked our network not to respond. I didn't want to hear from people that I already knew. Instead, I asked them to forward it on to their groups, their coffee clubs, their college campuses, their book clubs, their neighborhood groups. And to my unending surprise, the phone actually started to ring. So I bought a recorder and a camera. I hopped in my hatchback and drove all across the state and now all across the United States, interviewing people in cars and in bars and diners and quintessentially Minnesotan on boats, anywhere where someone might feel comfortable enough to disclose to me something that they've otherwise had the luxury to never explain. You can find the first 100 or so of those interviews on the website at weareallcriminals.org, should you go on there. And you to do so. You'll note that if you click once on any participant pick, you see how they're introduced into the world as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a policymaker, as a professor, as a student. What follows is how they would be introduced had they been caught. Sale of controlled substances, theft, assault, driving while intoxicated. Click twice and you go into the story itself. Now, as I said, these range in severity from quite serious, like the student and his aggravated robbery. I just wish I'd made a different decision, he said. Or this woman who, I kid you not, took a loaded gun on an international flight. They took her off the flight, 
took her to a, a hotel, put her up for the night, and then brought her home. At no cost to her, and no law enforcement was involved. To the relatively innocuous, like this gentleman who carried a beer bottle from one house party to the next, that's the open bottle, petty theft that was failure to return a library book, yes, we do prosecute for that. The next one down was public urination. This gentleman now has a contract to work with the Department of Defense, some of the highest security clearance in the nation. Had he been caught, he would find difficulty getting a job at a gas station. I know, because many of my clients were denied those very jobs for these very records. This woman who, as a young teen, shoplifted bangles and full-length LPs, records, uh, to cope with the loss of her mother, she is now recognized as a leader in her community. Likewise, the responses to the recollections of past transgressions are also varied, like this gentleman, for example, who told me about a time when he took his uncle's hunting rifle out to college with him. Just get a deer with it, his uncle said. Well, he didn't catch a deer, but he did catch a double-posted parking meter. Drunk one night, he and his friends decided to liberate the quarters from within. One drunken shot went right through the locking mechanism, letting loose nearly $40 worth of quarters. He calls it his 40 buck shot, and he laughed throughout the entire interview. Or this woman who told me about a time as a teen when she would break into her neighbor's homes, eat their ice cream, rifle through their junk drawers, and occasionally swipe some silver. She, she laughed, saying, let's just say I'm never going to be president. It was uh, an old interview. Some people note not just the luxury to forget, but the luxury to not regret. Some are quite grateful. Others are deeply sorry. She told me about a time when she was working as a barista. She was underpaid, she felt, and underappreciated. So she used to pad her tips with bills from the till. A dollar bill here, a five dollar bill there, a 10 or 20. As she told me this, the tears streamed down her face. I cannot imagine what life would be like now, she said, had I been labeled a thief then. And there are several that cannot begin to wrap their heads around what life would be like had they been caught. For example, the woman for whom I took this photograph. She said that when she was 16 years old, she was a bit of a nerd, a chemistry buff. One bored July day, she and her friends decided to make their own homemade napalm, as she called it, which apparently you can do with just a few common household ingredients. They whipped up this highly flammable viscous gel in an apple cider glass jar, let it sit overnight, and then the next morning, put it in their, uh, the trunk of their car, propped it up with some math textbooks, and took it out to a state park where they found the small, ideal, enclosed space upon which they could test their substance. They doused the inside of the porta potty with this gel, lit a gasoline-soaked tennis ball on fire, lobbed it in, and watched it blow. They then ran back to their cars and drove the speed limit the entire way home, terrified over what had just happened. The day that I interviewed her, that morning, she had been keeping a three-month-old heart alive with her index finger, beating it for the baby. She's a pediatrician. In her state and in many others, an arson or the destruction of a structure with a homemade explosive would be a permanent bar from ever working with vulnerable individuals, most definitely youth. 
It wouldn't have mattered that she was just a kid when it happened. It wouldn't have mattered that no one got hurt. It wouldn't have mattered that she was terribly sorry for what she had done. All that would matter was that the act occurred and she was caught and she would be out. She wasn't caught. It gives you pause, doesn't it? Or at least I think it should. When you consider all of the waste in the United States, again, when we're foreclosing futures before brains are even fully developed. Time and again, I've heard from people who recognize that crime is an event in a life course, not a static characteristic of one's being. I am not what I have done, she said. I am what I choose to become. And that's a lot easier without a criminal record. This teacher told me experimenting with delinquency is normal, and so is giving it up. I have that story, he said. Everybody has that story. If you find someone who claims they've never committed a crime, either they're lying, they have a very poor memory, or they're very abnormal. I've heard from law enforcement officers who reflect upon the weight of the mistakes <coughs> that they've made, and from salespeople who could have been known by their mugshot rather than their merit had their addiction uh, to chemicals been criminalized. Although not everyone has recalled their past quite so quickly, like the gentleman for whom I took this photograph. Now, remember I said I sent those flyers out to our social service network, but then asked them to forward it on to their networks? By the time it came to this gentleman, it must have been five, six times removed. He had no context for the broader conversation of criminal justice reform, much less the far narrower conversation of our common criminality. He said that when he got that flyer for the first three weeks, he would pick up his phone and dial all but my last digit, wanting to call me up and ring me out. When he finally did punch that last digit, it wasn't to complain, but to participate. You see, he recalled that he used to run drugs across Lake Superior. How do you forget something like that? You forget something like that when you think of drug trafficking as something that happens between strangers in darkened alleyways, not something that happens between college friends. Here's what happened. His freshman year, he left his hometown, traveled across the lake, and went to a small private school. His sophomore year, he transferred back to his hometown and moved in with some of his old high school friends, who it turns out were no longer just smoking dope, now they were selling it. And he became the ideal conduit to the untapped market across those stormy waters because he knew who the potential narcs were. He knew who the legitimate smokers were. So he said, and I quote, they trained me in on phones. I would sometimes take the, the drugs. I would often take the money. But I only did it for a couple of years. Really, he said, do you think that anything I did rose to the level of something criminal? <laughs> Yeah, I do. State, federal, felonious, yeah. And with that, he became one of my favorite participants. By the way, I am still interviewing, so if you would like to be my next new favorite participant, please let me know. He became one of my favorite participants because he began to unravel his own history. He said, look, had I been caught, I wouldn't have graduated high school, or I wouldn't have graduated college. If I wouldn't have graduated college, I wouldn't have gotten that first internship where I met my wife. If I didn't meet my wife, I wouldn't now have my two sons. Let's just say, though, he said, that by some cosmic confluence, I still did meet my wife, I still did have my two sons. What kind of father would I be? 
For example, every year he gets an application to volunteer with his son's hockey league team. And every year it asks the question, have you ever been convicted of and lists 10 offenses? And every year he blithely checks, no, 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 no. If, he said, it were to ask, have you ever committed any of the following, he doesn't know how he would respond. And had he been caught, he doesn't know what he would do. He said he would have three options. Option number one, I could lie, he said. I could check no. This is a gentleman that nearly got an ulcer from a flyer. Dude is not about to lie. Take that off the table. Option number two, I could check yes, we'll explain. This gentleman is a business owner, and for the past 12 years, he has asked on his uh, job application for uh, the, the applicant's criminal history. It says, have you ever been convicted of an offense? Yes or no? And every time that box is checked in the affirmative, he says, he trashes the app because he didn't want to work with a criminal. He said that even if I did check yes, even if I did explain, I know how parents are. And I know that any stigma that would attach to me would also run down to my sons, and there's nothing that I would do to harm them. So that's off the table. He said I would have one option left, option number three. I could just not respond. I could take myself out. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with who have just stopped responding because you can only take that door slammed in your face so many times before you've just had enough. I've heard so many stories of people engaging in drug-related activity on college campuses, like the gentleman pictured here who donated part of his financial aid to help finance a drug ring. He said he wanted a girlfriend. I got one. Or this woman who sold weed to frat bros and football players so that she could get a hey, what's up in the hallway. She said she was sick of feeling invisible. And then there are some that I cannot believe in the United States we are still talking about in 2018, like uh, the, the story this woman told me. Uh, she said a few years ago, her husband had been diagnosed with a particularly aggressive and terminal form of cancer. In the last few months of his life, his body became so contorted in pain that he could no longer pick up a pencil. He couldn't shampoo his own hair. This man, by the way, the year before had been an active Marine, ostensibly at the peak of his physical career, and now he could no longer bathe himself. She said the only thing that could assuage that pain was pot. Now, she had asthma, so he couldn't smoke it. So instead, she put the pot and the butter and the butter and the brownies, and together they would eat it. And she said that when they did, just for a moment, he could relax his hand enough to hold hers. He died. Her life stopped. She doesn't remember what she did with the pot. Maybe she ate it, she didn't think so. Maybe her friends did, that's more likely. She said maybe she threw it away. It didn't matter, right? What mattered was that her husband had just died. Is that a story you think you can use, she asked me. And I told her about a phone call we had received <coughs> at the nonprofit where I was working. There was a, a woman, an indigenous woman in the Northwoods, Minnesota. She had been living with her only son a man 
in his 40s when he was diagnosed with a particularly aggressive and terminal form of cancer. In the last few months of his life, his body became so contorted in pain that she said sitting with him was like sitting with a shell of her son. The only thing that could assuage that pain was pot. Now, she didn't have asthma, so he straight up smoked it. And when he did, she said it's like her baby was back with her again. He died. Her life stopped. She didn't touch anything of his. She didn't move his work boots from the back door. She didn't throw away his toothbrush from the bathroom sink, and she didn't toss the pot that was in the freezer. Some time went by, police executed a search warrant on her home. There had been allegations she was warehousing drugs. They tore apart the place, eventually finding the pot in the freezer. This woman was arrested, she was charged, and she was convicted with a felony possession of controlled substances. She's 72 years old. She's locked out of housing. She's living on the streets. Hers is not the only heartbreaking story that I've heard over the years. Uh, like, for instance, the gentleman for whom I took this photograph. When he was 15, his family moved into a rougher neighborhood than they had been in before, and the neighborhood before was rough enough. Within the first few weeks, he said he found himself mugged and beaten several times. The only thing that stopped those beatings was when he hung around a certain group of guys. Now, he did what perhaps any logical 15-year-old would do, and he joined that gang. That didn't come for free. And the price was exacted one Saturday day when he was told that if he didn't pick up a lead pipe and hit another child, another 15-year-old kid, a member of a rival gang, that he would be the one beaten. So he said he made the decision that he's regretted every day since. He picked up that pipe and he hit that child. The beatings continued. The boy was eventually dragged away. The participant doesn't know what happened to him. Had he been caught, he would have been charged at the very least with the first degree assault for the benefit of the gang. He would have been certified to stand trial as an adult. At trial, he would have been convicted. Once convicted, he would have entered the system, going into prison and coming out, going back in and out, back in and out. He wasn't caught. Instead, he graduated from high school. He got a scholarship to go to college. At college, he said, he could read an entire paragraph. He could complete a math problem. At college, he said, he could concentrate. He wasn't constantly checking over his shoulder to see what was coming next. He was safe. His grades skyrocketed. He went on to graduate school and now has a PhD in biophysics. Now, I'm not saying that that would have been impossible had he been caught, but let me break it down. He wouldn't have graduated high school on time. I cannot fathom that he would have received that scholarship to go to that Ivy League school. Applying for that school, he would have had to check the box that identified him not just as a criminal, but as a violent felon. He would have to check that same box on every housing application, every loan application, every internship application, every employment application. Every application for the rest of his life, he would be checking that box. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be consequences for harm done. 
in fact, I think that we should allocate our funds to help prevent that harm from being done. I'm saying that the consequences that we create must be rational. They must be reasonable. They must be equitable. And perhaps above all else, they must be merciful. Because without hope, what does one have? We Are All Criminals is about the human cost of mistakes, the human cost of interactions with the system, the human cost of never allowing people to come up for air. While we have all violated the law, and in the United States, it is literally impossible to navigate our legal landscape for any, of all, any appreciable amount of time without violating it left and right, some of us, perhaps one in four of us, may be in need of a second chance. But make no mistake, this project is also a commentary on the disparate impact of our nation's policies, policing, and prosecution. Many, not all, but many of the participants have benefited from belonging to a class and race that is not overrepresented in our criminal justice system, and some of the participants have been pretty straight up about that. As a teenager, he fashioned himself to be the next Steven Spielberg one day. Uh, he and his friends decided to direct and star in a mock-up of Dirty Harry. They dressed up as bank robbers, complete with replica firearms, briefcases stuffed with stacks of fake cash, and nylons pulled down over their heads. The camera was set up on the back of a car, the venue was an alley, and the backdrop was a bank. A real, live, bustling with bodies, middle-of-the-day, open-for-business bank. Within minutes, squads were called in. Drop your weapons, police shouted, aiming theirs at the kids. One of the teens refused to comply, perhaps not fully comprehending what was happening. Drop your weapons, the police continued to shout until all teens finally complied. Once they did, the participants said, they lectured us energetically until they ran out of words. Then they let us go. But first, they let us finish the shoot. I grew up in a very affluent town. He said it was the kind of place where it was easy not to have contact with police. The few interactions I had were very respectful and innocuous. A tap on the shoulder, a suggestion to go home. Understand that not everyone is afforded that same presumption of innocence. For some, in particular, black and native people in the United States, their mere existence is seen as always already criminal. This isn't just about those who have lost their lives. Consider those, too, who were followed, accused, arrested, and abused, chewed up and spat out as if they weren't somebody's son, somebody's daughter, mother, father, sister, mentor, believer, somebody. So while you're thinking about the stories of people who got away with it, consider the lives, the narratives of people who are in the criminal justice system in the United States right now, people who are suffering under the weight of those criminal records right now, many for engaging in same or similar offenses. There are, after all, millions to choose from. Take note of the wasted potential. We need to invest rather than incarcerate. Our criminal justice system is teeming with scholars. Students, artists, counselors, caretakers, change makers, game changers, leaders, 
and more. I know who I am, he said. I am not my mistake. So here's what I hope in all of this. I hope that people see a bit of themselves in the stories and in the foregrounds. I hope that you're able to take note of the context you allow yourself. I was young. I was drunk. I was stupid. I was in a bad relationship. I gave it back anyway. It wasn't my idea. No one got hurt. Whatever that context is, recognize that may have existed for someone who was caught or accused as well. Now, it may not be an excuse, but it is an opportunity to recognize a common humanity. I hope that some recognize the privilege they've experienced and appreciate that not everyone has benefited from that same privilege. I hope that people can reflect how very patently different their own life could be had they been caught and again consider those foreclosed futures of all who have been. Finally, I hope that it inspires people to take action. If the criminal justice system were designed by people who believe they might one day be involved, he said, or I would add people who have been involved, then we would have justice. So I ask you, what's your story? What would your chalkboard say? What would life be like for you if you were, labor, if you were labeled by your worst mistake? What would life be like for you if you had to check yes? There's a criminology professor in Georgia. Denise Woodall is her name. She has been asking students to uh, just assess some basic empathy-seeking questions regarding individuals who are in the system. So for example, how many meals should people in prison receive a day, two or three? Should people behind bars be allowed to study? Upon release, should they be able to work or live near you? She collects these responses and then asks her students to consider their own criminality, crimes committed for which they were not caught, and to consider what life would be like had they been labeled by those offenses. She then circles back and asks those first questions once more. She tells me that approximately 50% of the time, for example, students who had at first said that people behind bars should receive only two meals a day, bump their answers up to three upon realizing that they could be the ones denied dinner for the next eight years. This project, We Are All Criminals, is about closing that empathy chasm, but also that opportunity chasm. It's a call for reason, equity, and mercy and acknowledged ownership in the problem as well as the solution so that soon, one day, when Anthony, that's in there, opens a sheet of paper, a page that's used to define himself, his character, his being. He finds not thief, but father, caregiver, nurse, speaker of multiple languages, avid reader and volunteer coach, a man with the luxury to forget and the opportunity to be forgiven, a man not defined by his worst mistake, but by his true worth, a man not forever tethered to his past, but wholly able to live in the present and to dream of a future.